Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. Colleges around the country have been holding emergency meetings of their honor code councils and other committees that govern student cheating. The reason, and you probably guessed, is a new AI tool called ChatGPT, which essentially makes possible a new kind of cheating. This ChatGPT is free, and it can answer just about any question you type into it. And it can adapt the answer it gives to express itself in different styles or tones. The result is it generates text that sounds like a person wrote it. As we explored in an episode a few weeks ago, students around the country at schools and colleges have figured out that they can easily ask ChatGPT to essentially do their homework for them. After all, it's pretty much tailor-made to craft the kinds of essays that instructors generally ask for. And students have figured out that you can do things like tell this chatbot to rewrite the output to make it sound like, say, a freshman in college wrote it. Professors have been quick to respond. Concerned faculty started emailing us in December. That's Rachel Davenport. She is the vice chair of the Honor Code Council at Texas State University. That council's job is to oversee issues of academic integrity across the whole university. Those emails have just continued, and those issues have been coming up a lot at the departmental meetings in early January, for example, especially in our English department um, and history, etc., where writing is especially a, a common assignment in classes. And so we were fielding more and more of those um, emails and then um, educating ourselves, too, the the members of the Honor Code Council, um, just educating ourselves on what's going on and what's out there, trying out all of the tools. What would you describe as the mood of professors around this technology right now? Mm. I think so many professors right now are struggling with burnout and disengagement and so many other things already that even those that embrace paradigm shifts are at minimum sighing. Like, oh, this is another thing for me to pay attention to. I see a frustrated emoji right here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I mean, I, I'm right there with them in the sense that like I, I already have incorporated this into one of my classes for the semester like I'm I'm on it and I'm gonna ride the wave but I definitely have sighed heavily many times because I'm tired and so I think that's the well I think that's some of it is some some of our faculty are ready to take on the challenge and figure out how this just gets incorporated um, I think the other prevailing mood is uh, terror, you know, how, how this throws everything that I do into chaos. How am I supposed to catch it? How, you know, so I think that uh, some of our faculty are just very afraid. Terror. I mean, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you have, if you, if your goal is for students to be generating assignments on their own and now suddenly AI will just do it for them. And you might not know, I think that feels huge. On this week's EdSurge podcast, we bring you part two of our exploration of what ChatGPT means for teaching. 
Our focus this time is on what college honor code councils are doing to respond. We'll get back to the situation at Texas State in a minute. Oh, and yes, that is Rachel Davenport, who we have been hearing from in our series about growing student disengagement on campus. As I've been working on that series, I keep hearing from Rachel and other folks that I'm talking to that, okay, yes, disengagement is in fact a big issue, but the bigger thing that they're thinking about lately is chat GPT. So here we go. I wanted to step back and check in with a national expert on student cheating. So I connected with Derek Newton, a journalist who runs a weekly newsletter called The Cheat Sheet about academic integrity and cheating. I think it's been a very loud alarm bell uh, for people in teaching and learning, you know, students as well as as professors and, and instructors at all levels. I asked Derek Newton how the response to ChatGPT is different from other tools and services that students have used to cheat in the past. In other words, how does it compare to services like essay mills, where students can pay a human writer to compose papers for them? Word about these things usually spreads in secret, in darker corners of the internet. And use grows slowly over time, typically. But that's not the way ChatGPT is rolling out. Yeah, I counted, I think, six separate uh, columns in the New York Times on chat GPT. Now, not all of them were related to academics or, or academic misconduct, but that level of visibility is basically unprecedented for everything except war. So it's the awareness that it got globally so quickly is, is we, we might be able to draw comparisons, but there aren't many. I shared the comment that Rachel Davenport at Texas State made that some professors are reacting with terror. I was curious what Derek thought the threat level was or should be. I think terror is probably overstated. Uh, There are things you can do to be more prepared and more aware of it. Uh, There are tools already available to help you detect it if you want to use them. More are coming soon. Uh, So it isn't where, you know, you're alone in the wilderness uh, facing this onslaught. Uh, You know, I do think more effort is going to be required from professors and instructors in written assignments. Uh, They're going to have to invest more time and mental energy in reading closely because uh, chat GPT specifically has signals in the writing that that somebody who's paying attention can pick up on. Uh, It does make factual errors. Which, are, which should be a big clue that it was generated artificially. Um, and so in addition to reading for style and mastery and composition and structure of a written piece, you know, professors are going to have to engage it uh, more deeply. And, and I, I, feel, I feel bad for them, but if you're concerned about it, uh, there are, you're just going to have to do those sorts of things. So back to Texas State. Because I think what's happening there seems pretty typical of how professors and honor councils are responding. Rachel Davenport noted that one thing she did recently to get up to speed was to try both ChatGPT and a tool designed to detect bot-written writing called GPT-0. Now, Rachel is a trained scientist. She teaches biology at the university. So her impulse was to run her own experiment. I did run nine um, submissions through GPT-0. and that uh, Six of them were human, and three of them I had uh, chat GPT generate. Um, and so of those nine, 
seven of them were correctly identified, whether it was human or AI. The two that weren't correctly identified, they weren't incorrectly identified either. It just said they needed more information. And one of them was by a student and the other was by uh, ChatGPT. So did it ever get, did it get any of them wrong the other way where it falsely accused? It never got them wrong. It and only, this is GPT zero? Yeah, GPT zero. It never got them wrong. It either got them right or said, I need more information. Do you think the presence of this AI tool is going to increase the number of honor code violations? Yes, especially at first, um, as professors try to wrestle with it, it's going to be tricky to prove because just running it through something like GPT zero, um, will not, probably be sufficient um yeah unless the student admits but they don't have to in a way right and and i can also see because we've had this come up with other sites like wolfram alpha or wolfram alpha um where the faculty member calls the student in and says look you know i suspect this didn't come from you why don't you talk me through it and what you learned and what your process was and if the student can't effectively do that then maybe that's further evidence that it didn't come from them. Um, so I suspect we will see more violations at first, but, uh, but I, I hope that it will only be kind of short-lived until people get a better handle on what's allowed and, and how to either use this in their classes or in really discourage use of it in their classes. This week, the Honor Council at Texas State sent out a letter to every faculty member at the university about ChatGPT. The subject line says, Artificial Intelligence, Paren ChatGPT, and the University Honor Code Policy. Here's how it starts. As we begin the second week of the spring 2023 semester, we would like to briefly mention the developing topic of artificial intelligence and potential honor code implications that may arise if used by students in preparation of course deliverables submitted for academic credit. Our institution, teaching and evaluation methods, and follow-on industry rely on the use of computers to assist with common work tasks every day. However, when used in lieu of individual thought, creation, and synthesis of knowledge by falsely submitting a paper written all or in part as one's own original work, an academic integrity violation results. I won't read the whole thing, but it goes on to remind faculty of the rules and some basics of the honor code, and it points to some resources that professors can check out to learn more about ChatGPT. And it includes our previous episode on ChatGPT as one of those resources. Thanks, Rachel. Meanwhile, I was curious to ask Derek Newton, that national expert, what his advice to honor committees is in responding to this new AI tool. You know, there are other things that I think schools should do. One of them is retain written work. Um, if they don't have a retention policy, they ought to. What do you mean by retain it? Keep it uh, and make it clear that it will be, it may or may not be looked at later, even after you graduate. Uh, and so this sort of changes the dynamic of risk reward for that. You know, chat, J, chat GPT may be able to write your essay in 90 seconds, but you may be hearing about it five years from now. 
uh, when the technology gets really, really good at detecting it. And I'm not so sure that's, um, that's an engagement that a lot of students want to take. They might risk the F now, but they may not want to, you know, have the inquiry come up when they're in their job. Wow. I mean, that's it's also like really kind of unnerving, right? If you're, a, if you're even an innocent student, if there's possibility of a false positive. Sure. Sure. And I think, I think that too is something that's not well understood even by professors, you know, that these tools uh, should never be used in all of them. I mean, whether it's uh, exam proctoring or plagiarism detection should never decide or even make an accusation of misconduct. That just shouldn't happen. I mean, they should be uh, diagnostic tools to inform those decisions that professors make uh, or, or deans or whoever is the decider. Um, anybody who's using these tools to say, oh, you plagiarized or you used AI or you cheated uh, is using those tools wrong, in my, in my opinion. And when you talk to the people who designed them and, and sell them, that's what they say as well. So, um, so describe I, – sorry, I, I, that's really interesting you know, because I do think – um, it, it, it may be the case that in the nuanced marketing, they do that, but they also sort of say, we can, we can help you detect this. And it, there's a, there's a litigiousness to this process that, that feels counter to the, this sort of, you know, happy mission of universities and learning for learning's sake. And, and it, it seems more like we're in this, this is a mode of like an insurance adjuster or something. I don't know. Well, uh, you're you're dead on. I mean, you know, I don't think a lot of people have an awareness that there are insurance policies for academic misconduct uh, because that these the universities have to carry and pay premiums on because they are high stakes litigious engagements now. Now, maybe everyone out there knew this, but I didn't realize this was such a common thing for colleges to buy insurance concerning academic integrity. I wanted to know more about this. Part of the insurance package that universities can get and carry covers uh, risk of academic risk related to academic integrity, litigation, uh, credential uh, um, revocation. These things tend to go on for years and be very expensive. And as cases of academic integrity or breaches of academic integrity go up, and those litigation and processes get more complicated and longer. It drains the resources of the university. What kind of litigation are we talking about? Just to make sure I can put a really crystallize this for people. Who sues? Who sues? The student sues because they feel like it's not a fair process. Uh, students, yeah. There's a uh, there's a I don't want to call it a cottage industry, but there's a fairly large industry of attorneys who do almost nothing but uh, academic integrity litigation at this point. That tends to start internally in the review process with academic integrity committees and deans and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it does regularly spill into um, at least threatened litigation and sometimes actual litigation. I've covered a few cases where students have, have sued in a court. And they want, because they didn't get their degree they feel the uh, they want to uh, take the class again, or they feel like the permanent mark on their uh, transcript should be removed because it's going to impact their graduate school process, or it's going to impact uh, grants or applications they're doing in, in the future. And generally, those lawsuits are done on procedural grounds, like they feel like the proctoring software wasn't accurate, or they feel like, you know, that this wasn't a, a consistent policy, like and that's and, and honestly, I have sympathy about that. You know, Professor Smith may take academic integrity very seriously 
and examine every possible shred of evidence, you know, how quickly the keystrokes are coming in on the LMS and Professor Brown uh, may not even use the LMS. Um, so is it an equitable process even in the same course? Uh, yeah, a good argument to be made that it isn't. Hmm. So it gets to be higher stakes than just the ethics, which are important too. Sure, uh, that's right. I mean, there are there are financial consequences for the universities. I mean, I remember seeing in the uh, right in the height of the shift to online learning because of the pandemic that several big universities, uh, and I could go back and look at which ones, but were running. Uh, their review processes for academic integrity cases were taking up to a year at that point just to get somebody scheduled for hearing uh, because the universities simply didn't have the capacity to handle this influx, just like they didn't have the capacity to run their entire university online. A lot of them mm -hmm. didn't. They didn't have capacity for academic misconduct cases to triple or more. Uh, they, they just couldn't handle that influx of cases. They'd never had to deal with it before. Um, and so is that a fair process if it takes you eight months to get a hearing? Um, no, I would say it's not a fair process, not a great process. But, I, you know, apart from massively scaling up the bureaucracy and the infrastructure to deal with that, I don't know what the solution is. You know, unfortunately, I don't know how deep in the weeds you want to get. But unfortunately, what happened, in my opinion, it's unfortunate, is a lot of universities saw this crush of cases coming and put in what they call alternative resolution processes which was basically the equivalent of a, a no contest thing. We're not going to, we're not going to really punish you. You just sign here and uh, promise not to do it again. And we're going to fail you on your test, but that'll be the end of it. And a lot of students took that because it, you know, it avoided just like the criminal justice system. It avoided the trial and the whole prosecute. We just, we just moved on. Um, and now here comes chat GPT where the caseload is going to go up. Right. Uh, and that's going to be interesting. You know, I don't know if it's going to result in a huge spike in academic integrity cases, uh, but I do suspect I have I think we both agree it has gotten the attention of a lot of professors. So I think that in turn will drive case numbers mm -hmm. up because a lot more professors are going to be paying a lot more attention now than they were last year or even to other forms of cheating. Exactly. And, and they're going to be just on the alert for it. Uh, and they're going to be talking about it uh, to one another and sharing tips and techniques. And um, you know, there was, there was good evidence that that happened during the pandemic too, that, that not only did cheating increase because the resources were more available and the, and the infrastructure wasn't there to accommodate the shift to online learning, but that, some professors, maybe a good number of professors, were more alert for it, and so they caught more of it. So it was a thing. It went up, but also the awareness went up, and that double bump created a spike in cases. It turns out there are deeper questions to consider when it comes to ChatGPT and this ability for AI to generate language that sounds human. Because it's possible that we're at a big turning point in our broader use of technology where maybe more and more real-world scenarios will arise, where people will work with AI to get things done. That came up the other day when I was talking to Simon McCallum, a professor who teaches video game design at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. He was telling me about how he is starting to use AI tools with his students that can turn code written in one programming language into code written in another language. At least if I understood him correctly. It's called GitHub Copilot, 
And it's kind of like ChatGPT, but for writing code. Right. So I've been using, I used um, GitHub Copilot this year um, for my students te- um, using Unreal Engine. So they were using uh, Copilot because they're Java programmers needing to program in C++. And so we used uh, GitHub Copilot so that they could change language more easily because it was suggesting code to them. Um, and they become more productive, but they don't learn as much C++. Um, and just looking at, at GTP4 and ChatGTP, um, our problem is not going to be engagement in the coming year. It's going to be the, the fact that it is easier for students to use the AIs to do all of their work that we would normally get them to do than to actually put the effort into learning. Uh, and if you become very transactional and you, you try and force people to engage, you try and lead the horse to water, um, the fact that they've now got a camel pack means you're never going to get them to drink, right? Um, and the AI, and so we're, we've got a meeting next week to talk about how we fundamentally change our assessment methods and what we think of as education because it's not because I saw Microsoft just spent ten billion investing in in OpenAI. Yep. Um, OpenAI. And so yep. the thought is that they'll be bringing ChatGTP to Microsoft Word. And so now, as you write, you won't have any of that grammar issue that you used to have. Everything, and as you write, it'll just suggest the whole thing, and you go, "Yeah, no, that's great," and go accept. The thing is that and I think this is most academics seem to be missing this, is it's not just a change for our students. It's a change in industry. I've been talking to industry programmers who are using the AI coders and um, advertisers who have been using AI to do copy for a long time. And if industry are using these tools, if we try and move back to pen and paper or invigilate it in person and we try and force people not to use those tools our assessments become less and less valid. They don't measure what students will actually need to do in the future. And so industry is going to fundamentally change. And so we can't just say, hey, this is just a cheating thing. It's not. This is a change to industry. It just happens that the change to industry makes the way we've been assessing people no longer useful or valid. And so I think we, we certainly can force them to do pen and paper in person, but boy, it's going to be a massive challenge to switch our mindsets from measuring what students produce to measuring what they understand. Um, because we've always used that proxy of what they produce is a symptom of understanding, right? They they understand something and therefore they can produce it, but we can't measure that anymore so we now have to go back and and I do a lot of stuff on on confidence based assessment where um, you give your answer and you also give an assessment of how confident you are in your answer to try and get to that deeper understanding of saying, well, how do you know what you know? This refrain of professors thinking of embracing ChatGPT instead of considering it cheating is another big idea out there right now that many professors are thinking about. It's something Rachel Davenport at Texas State mentioned that she's definitely hearing about and that she's looking for ways to try that approach as well. So some faculty are talking about using it as a starting point. Um, some, some English faculty, they've been talking about it as, um, well, why don't you put in 
you know, the, the minimum what you want to write about and use this as a starting point and then you flesh it out from there. For me personally, um, I am I already give students choice in assignments so they can do one of three different things and one of those is a, a research project where they um, read or learn deeply about something from many internet sources and then write about it. And that is the one assignment I have that ChatGPT can do, but it doesn't do it great. I keep grading it around a C and it's hard because if I could grade them on pizzazz, (laughs) then it would grade really poorly, but that's not in my rubric. But it doesn't integrate well. It doesn't integrate ideas well. It's definitely boring to read. It's um, some inaccuracies. So I think what I'm going to do in my class is tell them if you really want a fourth option, why don't you have ChatGPT write you a research paper and then why don't you critique it? Like, look it up. Let's find, like, see if there's inaccuracies. And then tell me if you had done this, what would you have done differently? Do you think this is a good read? Do you think that this would actually teach someone? You know, how would you have done it differently? So I, I, I think that's going to be my, the way that I incorporate it. And do you think that they'll learn as much that way if they're grading the um, generative AI? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, one, if they have to kind of generally look to see if there are inaccuracies, in that sense, it feels like maybe they're learning because they're fact checking. Um, and if they're thinking about how could I have made this a science communication that would have had wider reach or that would have had more pizzazz, I think they are thinking, they're at least learning about um, science writing and and science communication or, I mean, they're, they're learning something, even if it's not the original, very specific learning goal. Again, I think in my class, this is flexible because I already have three options, a book report, a research project, a service learning project. So I've already said to them, you get to pick how you show me that you go further. So this is just another direction to go further. So what's next? for this intricate and occasionally litigious world of academic honor councils. And all those instructors out there trying to make sure students are turning in their own work. I turn to Derek Newton again for his assessment. In, in, in colleges specifically, I suspect you're going to see a lot of universities updating and re-examining their policies to be clear about what is expected and what is uh, accepted. Um, and I, I think there's sort of already a growing consensus that using chat GPT or its cousins in academics is going to be okay. It's going to be allowed uh, as long as it's cited appropriately, or there's a conversation with your professor that says, yes, I'm okay if you use this in this way on this assignment. Where it's going to be a problem is where that isn't noted and somebody, you know, turns it in uh, below their name without mentioning to anybody that they didn't actually write it. Um, you know, I suspect that there there isn't going to be any more forgiveness about that sort of thing than we've seen from turning in a paper from an essay mail or, you know, copying your, uh, you know, older brother's assignment uh, from, from three years ago. Uh, I suspect that line isn't going to shift much. But that's a big, that's a big change. Can I just, just to, just to sit on that for a minute. Like, so unlike, Unlike previous chapters that you and I have covered in this ongoing, you know, age-old story of student misconduct, um, 
the this one is something that will probably be you know adopted as a tool and tried to be reined in instead of instead of this just dark shadowy thing that is at like the the paper mill like having paying someone to write your paper for you that is never going to be okay but this is different this i think will be different uh because of its universal access uh and that it that i think a lot of people see and i'm i'm among them I, it has a lot of potential as a teaching tool as a as a providing uh answers just the way and just the way google was i mean i remember similar not to this level but i remember similar things when google became the uh everybody's encyclopedia right that oh we we it's going to change academics well it sort of did and it sort of didn't you know you can't uh I guess you could in an academic paper say, well, I found it on Google, but I think most professors expect a little more than that. Um, and so sure. I think you're going to get into a similar situation. Well, well, chat GPT said this, I think professors are going to be like, okay, good. Thank you for telling me, but we expect a little more. The last episode we did on chat GPT, I turned to the chatbot itself for the last word. These days, it's been a lot harder to get into because it's so popular. And sometimes the servers say it's just too busy. But I have a sense that a lot of you out there are giving it a try. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we look at how education is changing, and we aim to spark your curiosity about the learning process. If you like the show, please follow the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen and tell a friend so we can continue to grow. This episode was produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Thanks to those who have been writing in about recent episodes or shared out the EdSearch podcast on social media. If you have comments or want to shoot me an email, I'm at jeff at edsurge.com. Music this episode by Rowan Jane and editing by Rebecca Koenig. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning and part three of our series on student disengagement. Thanks for listening.